Well, it's my great privilege to be with you again this evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. And we will read the first 18 verses. As we read these verses, keep this in mind that John wrote this gospel, as he tells us at the end of chapter 20, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's primary concern is not simply to educate his readers or hearers, not simply to inform them, but to win them to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is out to get you. And in 15,635 words, he seeks to do that. So as we read these familiar words at the beginning of his gospel, keep this in mind. God, through his servant John, is seeking not only to teach you certain great profound truths about himself and his son, he is out to win the allegiance of your life, the devotion of your heart, and the enthronement in your life of his son, Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, that is John the baptizer. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. 
For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, or perhaps better, the only begotten Son who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Whenever you read the Bible or hear the Bible read, you should always have in your forefront of your minds this truth. God has given us His Word not simply to instruct us and inform us, but to transform us. His Word comes to dwell richly within our hearts. It comes not merely to remain on the surface of our lives. It comes not merely to make us orthodox in our convictions, but godly in our living. Martin Busser, the great reformer from Strasbourg, who so influenced John Calvin during the two and a half years Calvin was there with him, 1538 into 1541, wrote, true theology is never theoretical. It is always practical and pastoral. The end of it is to live a godly life. Those who understand theology best are those who live the most godly of lives. God has given us His Word. He's not given us a systematic theology. He's given us His living revelation embedded in time and space, in sociology and psychology. He's given us His truth enshrouded with humanity, inspired inerrantly by the Holy Spirit. And here is John, who, by the grace of God, had come from being a fisherman to being a fisher of men. He had come to follow Jesus Christ. His life had been captivated by Jesus Christ. His life had been transformed by Jesus Christ. And now he writes this gospel to win others to the Savior that He has come by the grace of God to know and to love. And so, my hope this evening is not that we will simply leave thinking, well, that was helpful and interesting. I didn't know about this. I wasn't sure about that. But that we might, in the Lord's goodness, all leave saying, not only it was good for me to be here, but blessed be God that I was here. If someone asked you, what is the glory of the Christian religion? I wonder what your answer might be. What is the glory of the Christian religion? John Owen, the great English pastor, theologian, the Puritan, 
uh, born 1616, I think, dies 1683. He wrote these words, the glory of our religion, the glory of the church, the sole rock whereon it is built, the only spring of present grace and future glory is the incarnation of the Son of God. Now, that may strike you as a little unusual. Perhaps you were expecting Owen to say the glory of our religion, the only spring of present grace and future glory is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would think that if you said to John Owen, surely, Dr. Owen, it's the cross and not the incarnation, my guess would be that Owen might smile if he ever smiled. And he would say to you, you think not rightly about the cross of the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. The glory of the cross rests on who it is who hangs there making atonement for sin. What gives virtue and value? What gives glory and eternal blessedness to multitudes no man can number from that one man dying on a Roman cross? It lies in the virtue of who he was. God the Son made flesh. And I want in the short time we have this evening to Reflect with you on the 14th verse of this first chapter of John's gospel, and, and significantly, the and should be there. If you have an NIV, write and in front of verse 14. It is kai, kai hologos sarxagenito, kai and, it's significant. These, these copulative words in the Bible are profoundly significant, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the New Testament makes no attempt anywhere to explain the incarnation, literally the becoming in flesh of God the Son. It was not that the New Testament writers were unintelligent or that they lacked inquisitiveness. They simply understood they were out of their depths. Behold what God hath wrought. They were out of their depths. He did it. Remember when the angel comes to Mary, Luke chapter 1, and says, Mary, you're going to conceive, you're going to give birth to the Son of God, and Mary's bewildered. She's a virgin. She's never known a man. And she says, how, how, how will this be? Can you imagine this, this young, possibly 14, 13, 15-year-old Jewish girl, bewildered? What, what is this? Virgins don't conceive. She knew basic biology. And the angel says, 
the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Episkiatso will overshadow you. And the holy thing to be born of you will be called the Son of God. God does what God alone can do. What he does in the incarnation is purposefully and gloriously take us all out of our depths, takes us out of all of our intellectual and theological comfort zones. And that's why our appropriate response to the incarnation, the becoming in flesh of God the Son, should never be, first of all, intellectual curiosity, but adoring wonder. In the incarnation, the becoming in flesh of God the Son, God confronts us with His incomprehensibility, His wisdom, and His power, as well as His love. I remember sitting in the library at Cambridge University some years ago, the works of Herman Babink had just been uh, translated in English for the first time, and some anonymous friend, I presume, from the United States sent me the four volumes. I still don't know who sent them to me. And I was sitting in the library reading volume two, um, I think maybe page 29, it could be 39, don't hold me to it, but it might be, I think it's 29. And Bavink says, the fundamental idea in Christianity is, now how would you complete the sentence? The fundamental idea, truth, if you like, in Christianity is the incomprehensibility of God. And this is what we encounter in these dramatic words that must have sounded bizarre in the extreme to the ancient Greco-Roman world and the Word, the Word who earlier we are told was with God and who was God, who was in the beginning with God, through whom all things were made, that this Word became flesh, took materiality and joined it to Himself. Now, these words are easily parsed, if you know what parsing is, hopefully you do. We live in an uneducated generation. These words are easily parsed, but actually they are impossible to comprehend. We're like Job, we, we're touching the outskirts of God's ways. We, we understand the words, but oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments. His paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? You'll notice here that John is uninterested in reflecting on the metaphysics of the incarnation. The how of the becoming in flesh is beyond him. He simply states the foundational fact that God in Christ, God the Son in Christ, became flesh. 
Now, there are two things you need to understand here, two things that sometimes people imagine these words to teach when they don't teach that. These words are not saying to us that God the Son laid aside any of His Godness when He became man. Now, maybe you're thinking, ah, but Ian, he out on Echinosin. Remember? Philippians 2.7, himself he emptied. He didn't empty himself of anything. And you're saying, Ian, the Bible says, literally in the Greek text, himself he emptied. Ah, What's the next word? What's the next word? Himself he emptied, taking the form of a servant. This is subtraction by addition. He didn't stop being what he was. He became what he was not. This is his humiliation. He didn't cease to lay aside. He didn't empty himself of all but love. I, I can never sing that line in that great man can it be, because it's not true. He didn't empty himself of anything. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, subtraction by addition. And the other grave misunderstanding, actually grave heresy, is that God became a man in some kind of fusion of deity and humanity. The early church wrestled with this and through agonizing reflections on the Holy Scriptures came to the conviction, the truly biblical conviction, that this union of God and man in the womb of the Virgin Mary was without mixture without confusion, without separation. He was the one person, but there were two natures. They must never be blurred. They must be distinguished, but, but never separated in that sense. And so John says something that would have startled the ancient world. He became flesh. It was a commonplace in the ancient world that the gods had nothing to do with material reality. In fact, the great desire and, and, and the great aim was to free yourself of, of the, the cumbersomeness, the, the, the deadness, the, the dragness of the flesh and escape into the ethereal. And here is John saying, he became flesh. Now, this is a remarkable word because in Paul, flesh is almost always reflective of fallen Adamic humanity. But not in John. John is saying he became flesh. He, he came into personal union and identity with us as the better than Adam, becoming 
one with us that he might stand before God in our place and for our sake as our covenant head, giving to God in our humanity the obedience we could never give him and to die the death we could never die. It's a startling word because Jesus Christ looked like a sinner. In fact, Paul in Romans 8 verse 3 says, he was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. He looked just like a sinner. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. But his humanity was so real. It wasn't an illusion. It wasn't a pretense. It wasn't a robe that he had put on. He became what he was not. And we need to take that truth to heart. He became, not for a season, but forever, what he was not. He lived in our flesh. He died in our flesh. He rose in our flesh. He ascended in our flesh. He reigns in our flesh. And he will return in our flesh, glorified. Our lowly bodies becoming transformed like unto his glorious body. Before we dig a little deeper into this, perhaps the great question we need to ask, I think, is this. Why, oh why, would God do that? Why would the Word who was with God and who was God, who was in the beginning with God, through whom all things were made, why, oh why, would He become flesh? Well, of course, there's one thing we need to say there was no compelling reason for him to do so. There was nothing in us or in God that necessitated or compelled him, the Father, to send his Son to take our flesh and in our flesh to make atonement for sin. God is under obligation to nothing and no one. He did not need you and he did not need me to complete him or fulfill him. He is eternally blessed. We add nothing to the eternal felicity of the holy blessed Trinity. So why would he do this? The Bible gives us two reasons, I think. God so loved the world. Why did you come? Because we so loved this world. This world, this fallen, sinful, God-denying, God-rejecting, hell-deserving world, you loved this world? Yes. Lord, but why? because it pleased us so to do. That's why we are all debtors to sovereign grace 
mercy and love. We all have the same testimony if we're Christians. Whether we're regenerate in the womb like John the Baptist, whether we're converted dramatically like Saul of Tarsus, we all have the same testimony, saved by the electing, sovereign, gracious, free, discriminating love of Almighty God. To Him alone be the praise and the glory. The love of God, says John Owen, is the fountainhead of the gospel. But there's a second reason, I think. Why, why, why this condescension, as we sung? Why this humiliation? Why this coming in the likeness of sinful flesh? Well, your answer might be, well, he had to do that if sinners were to be saved, and that would be true. But I want to tell you something tonight. Neither you nor I have the first place in the heart of God. We are God's proximate purpose. Your salvation and mine is not the ultimate goal of the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. Remember how Paul puts it in Romans 8, 29? Those he foreknew, he also predestined. To what end? To be conformed to the likeness of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The coming of the Son of God into the world was for the ultimate glory of the Son of God, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We are the proximate purpose of the Savior's coming. The Father's ultimate purpose concerning His Son's coming is to make His Son the firstborn among many brothers, that heaven should be populated with creaturely reflective analogues of the Son of God. You know, that's why when we read words like this, and the Word became flesh, we should always pause and say, why, O Lord, such love to me? Let me say four things about the incarnation of the Son of God. First, Christ's incarnation is unembarrassed supernaturalism. Those are Benjamin Warfield's words, I hope. Some of you at least have read, and some of you might be prompted to read anything, anything by Benjamin Warfield, anything is gold dust. Christianity is unembarrassed supernaturalism. That's what so confounds the world. You believe that out of nothing, God created all things? Absolutely. You believe that in the space of six days, out of nothing, He created all things, sustains all things, upholds all things, directs all things, sovereignly overrules all things, ordains all things? Yes. I remember in Cambridge, one of the students who had started attending Cambridge Presbyterian Church, one of our wonderful girls had brought her along, and she asked to meet with me, and I met her in Starbucks the following week, and I could see she was quite nervy, 
Uh, I can still picture her sitting there, and she eventually said, she said, could I ask you a question? I said, oh, you can ask me anything you like. She said, do you believe in Noah's Ark? Well, she was studying um, the sciences at Cambridge, a bright girl. Well, I laughed, and she sort of looked at me. I said, you're asking me if I believe in Noah's Ark. I believe the creator of the cosmos became a zygote in a virgin's womb, and you're worried about Noah's Ark. <laughs> Christianity is unembarrassed supernaturalism. Behold what God hath wrought. We should never be embarrassed. I just love that phrase. Christianity is unembarrassed supernatural, not just supernaturalism, but unembarrassed supernaturalism is anything too hard for the Lord. Secondly, I just want to underline this again, Christ's incarnation is the overflow of the love of God. I do that for a number of reasons, but one is very personal to me. I've shared this with some of you before. The first time I ever recollect hearing the gospel, a boy at school, I was in my, you would call, junior year, yeah, halfway through my junior year, he invited me in a Sunday afternoon to a Bible class, and I liked the fellow, and I came along, I had to travel a long distance to get there, and I had no Christian background, no Bible, no church, nothing like that, and the fellow leading the Bible class, preached on John 3.16. I didn't know what John 3.16 was. The only thing I knew in the Bible was David's lament over Saul and Mount Gilboa. I could recite that because in primary school, we had a teacher who said, this is good literature. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, how are the mighty fallen. So, I knew David's lament over Saul and Mount Gilboa. I didn't know who David was or where Mount Gilboa was or who Saul was or who Jonathan was. But I could recite it. I'd never heard John 3.16. And I remember sitting there, puzzled, and then bewildered, because I couldn't get my head around why. Why would God love this world? Why? It doesn't make sense. I have no time for God. I didn't love him. I didn't read his Bible. I didn't love his son, follow his son. I, why? Because he did. Because he did. Behold your God. The God who loves the unlovely. The God who not only takes to do with sinners but who loves sinners. That's why it's, it's an awesome thing. You should only use that word awesome when it's predicated of God or anything about God. Coffee isn't awesome. Ice cream isn't awesome. Uh, coming to Twin Cities isn't awesome. It's really good, but God is awesome. We need to understand how central how paramount the first movement of the gospel is so that people hear that the great movement 
of God to this fallen, sinful, hell-deserving world is the overture of love. That's why it is an awesome thing to turn your back on God. You're not turning your back on the ground of being. You're not turning your back simply on the, the existential creator of the cosmos. You're turning your back on the God who is love and who sent his only begotten son that you might be saved from a lost eternity. Thirdly, Christ's incarnation was the revelation of the glory of the only begotten Son of God. The Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. We almost, and I think John would expect us to understand that the word here is tabernacled. He's, he's using Exodus 33 and 34 language not just in dwelt, but in grace and in truth. These are words that are embedded in, in Moses' dramatic encounter with God. In Exodus 33 and 34, Lord, show me your glory, says Moses, remember? And the Lord places Moses in the cleft of the rock, and he causes all his goodness to pass before him, the glory, goodness of God. And what does the Lord say? Remember, the, these are astonishing words. What does the Lord say? Moses says, show me your glory. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, rich in mercy, full of covenant love. Yes, he will by no means clear the guilty, but the first great movement is, you want to know me, Moses? I'm rich in mercy. Maybe someone here needs to hear that tonight. God is rich in mercy. You may say, well, if, if, if you knew what I was like and what I've done, I couldn't care what you've done. God is rich in mercy. Full of grace and truth. We don't have time to fully unpack that, but do you see what John is saying here? The glory of the only begotten, and it should be only begotten, not just one and only or only. It's, I was saying this yesterday to the men, if you can bear with me, it's not mono plus genos, kind, but mono plus genao to beget. It's the only begotten Son. The Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, the Spirit proceeds. Don't ask me what it means, because I don't know what it means. No one knows what it means, but it means that the Son isn't the Father, and the Father isn't the Son, and the Spirit isn't the Son, and the Son isn't the Spirit. It's the revelation of the glory of the only begotten of God, and it's a glory of grace and truth. I think it was Thomas Goodwin, I'm just remembering Thomas Goodwin in volume five of his his works, Thomas Goodwin, the Atlas of Independency, as he was called, one of the six um, independent uh, men in terms of ecclesiology at the Westminster Assembly. He says, grace is more than love. Grace is God who could send us to a damned eternity justly. Grace is God loving us. 
And John is expecting us to understand, and he'll later explicate this, that Jesus Christ is the truth. He is the truth, because he is the gospel. The gospel isn't something, isn't a blessing of salvation. We often think of salvation as a, a blessing. Well, of course, it is in one sense, but more biblically, salvation is Jesus Christ. He's the Savior. You're not saved by believing that you're justified by faith alone. You're saved by coming and casting yourself wholly on Jesus Christ. I don't think the thief on the cross, as he entered glory and someone said to him, ah, you're a justified sinner. I don't think the thief on the cross would have said, oh, yes, I am. I think he would have said, what does that mean? Well, why are you here? How did you get here? The man in the middle said, come. Don't misunderstand me. Of course, he was justified. Of course, he trusted Christ, but it was so unformed, and he knew so little, but he knew this. The man in the middle said, come. And the fourth thing, we should understand that Christ's incarnation should cause us to bow down and worship. One of the texts that I love preaching on at Christmas time is Matthew 2, 1 through 12. These mysterious strangers from the East, possibly they have been told about Daniel's prophecies. We don't know. The, the Bible is very frustrating, isn't it? The Bible really is frustrating, particularly Hebrew narrative. You read Hebrew narrative? It almost never gives moral comment. It just trundles on, and you want to say, please, please stop. Is this good or bad? Moses killing the Egyptian, is that good? Or I think it was actually good, but there you go. Um, um, Joseph, was, was, was he really proud? And, I, I don't think Joseph was proud and arrogant. I don't think that. I don't think the text says that. But Hebrew narrative and the Bible as a whole, A, it expects you to join up the dots. That's why you need to know the whole Bible. Pastors, elders especially, you need to know the whole Bible. So when you go to glory and Ezekiel says to you, oh, did you find my book helpful? You don't want to be saying, oh, well, actually, I, I only really read chapter 37. <laughs> Though these mysterious strangers come, and it's beautiful. <laughs> They've traveled this vast distance, actually. We don't know how they actually traveled. People interpose camels, donkeys, and whatever. But they get there and they see this, this helpless, wriggling infant, no doubt sucking at his mother's breast. And they bow down in worship. I think it's one of the most astounding statements in the whole Bible. They bowed down and worshiped. So let me conclude by applying this a little more practically. What will your life look like 
if you have come like John to see his glory. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Now, many people saw Jesus but didn't see his glory. His own family initially thought he was mad. The religious leaders, they plotted and planned and wickedly and vilely, not knowing that they were accomplishing the sovereign predestinating purposes of God. But if you have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth, because that grace and truth has captured your heart, what will your life look like? Let me just say three things as we close. Like Jesus, who is the glory, he is the doxa of God. Like Jesus, you will delight to obey the Father. Remember Psalm 40, I have come, it is written of me in the volume of the book, I've come to do your will, O God. The incarnate Son, as we will hear later, is the obedient Son. I've come from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Is your delight to do the will of the Lord? Like the psalmist, does your heart say, Lord, I love to run in the way of your commandments? Secondly, like Jesus, you will love God's people self-denyingly. I have come as the incarnate Lord, not to be served, but to serve. And to give my life a ransom for many. That's the hallmark of every true Christian. Like the Savior, however poorly, they seek to serve others. I've left you an example, said Jesus, John 13, you should follow in my ways. And when he comes by the Spirit into our lives, he comes as the obedient son. He comes to serve not only the Father who sent him, but to serve the people that he loves. And then, finally, like Jesus, you will love what God loves and hate what he hates. That's what holiness is. Holiness of life is loving what God loves and hating what he hates. Those were the two realities that framed and shaped and styled the Lord Jesus Christ's life on earth, loving what his Father loved and hating what his father hated. You see, it's one thing to understand intellectually and notionally that God became flesh, became man in the virgin's womb and lived the life he lived and died the death he died. But he has come to indwell us by his Spirit. 
And that life is to be translated into our lives idiosyncratically as husbands, wives, children, parents, friends, grandparents. Our lives are to exhibit, however dimly, however dimly, the Savior who became flesh in the virgin's womb. May it be so. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we bow down before your Son, the Son you did not spare but delivered up for us all, the Son who became flesh in the Virgin Mary's womb, the Son who took that flesh to Calvary's cross, and in that flesh made atonement for our sin. We bless you, Lord, for the wonder of his incarnation. We bow before you, we bless you, we thank you that it was all for us, all for us, though ultimately for him that he came into this world to seek and to save the lost. We thank you, Lord, for your grace, which is found alone in your Son. And we pray in his name. Amen.